Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians, and we'll begin this morning with verse 3. The Colossians were a church that had started out of the, the church at Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Longest he'd ever been in a church, by the way. And he taught in a school daily, in a school of Tyrannus, and he taught up to six hours a day. You talk about seminary. This was a seminary. And he taught them the word. The word spread from Ephesus into the Lycus Valley to three churches. Church at Laodicea, the church at Colossae, and the church at Hierapolis. And these three churches were the benefit of the ministry of one local church who was on fire for God. Now both Ephesus had its problems because remember Paul told Timothy, I'm sending you there to remind them and to tell the elders they need to stay on, on track. And I've already disciplined Hymenaeus and Alexander. So there were some problems in the Ephesus church and there were problems even in the Colossae church. That people were frustrated as we read from the scriptures. They were at unrest and they asked questions, can God give us peace and joy in the midst of this world. Take a look at this. We see the sinners in, uh, in, in uh, leadership or in the body in Colossians chapter 1 and verse uh, 27. We read the following. When I get to Colossians, I'll read it. Just simple, simple, simple matter of turning there. 127, he says to them, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope is coming from Christ himself. Secondly, he tells them that they can have changed lives. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where we read, as you follow in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He also talks to them about meeting their needs in uh, chapter 2 and verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and all authority. And we also see that he transforms our, our own personal lives in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your heart to the Lord. So now he gives a thanksgiving in chapter 3, or chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Now this is one sentence in the Greek. One sentence. Paul wrote long sentences. The main verb in this sentence is, we are giving thanks. And when, when a person gives thanks, he's giving thanks with joy. He understands what it is. 
Because thanks is a two-pronged word in the original language. It's got the word you in front of it, would be equivalent of E-U, and then it has the word of Christel. So it's Eucharist. Sometimes you hear the word Eucharist. The word is good giving, good or freely giving, freely grace. And so he's very thankful for the church at Colossae. He does not talk about the ills of that church, even though it had it. He is thankful for the church itself, that it exists, and it has faith, and it has love. He never lost his perspective that God is the ultimate source of all ministry done in his name. But he thanks the people for their servanthood, for the fact that they are working for him. It's an honest thankfulness that comes from a heart of love and acceptance. And he gives thanks in this particular passage. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand who God is, don't we? God is absolutely the part of the Trinity. God is in charge of everything. If one molecule, as R.C. Sproul would say, if one molecule is free, God is not in charge of anything. He's in charge of all atoms. He's in charge of all molecules. The, the most minute thing of material things, God is in charge of. It was Eric Sauer in one of his books, a German Christian philosopher said, he believed man is in the center of God's creation. You could go as far into space as you can into minuteness. If we would reduce all of this to pure matter in this room, we'd have to look at a pretty powerful telescope or a microscope to see what it is. God is in charge. And he's the father. The Father is the supreme among the persons of the Godhead. We believe in a trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are three persons, but one in essence, one in being. And the Father is supreme. Take a look at second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. As there is a role among the Godhead. There is a role in the Trinity. And Paul says, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. Now we're not talking about difference in quality or difference in spirituality. We're talking about roles. To say that a man is ahead of the woman is not to infer any kind of inferiority to the man spiritually, intellectually, or his personhood. It's just a matter of roles. And it's the same as in the Trinity. God is the head in the Trinity. Jesus Christ plays a role, and the Holy Spirit plays a role, and God works through all three. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 while you're in 1 Corinthians, and we see the, the order here. We see what the order of time in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, verses 23 to 28. He's talking about the resurrection, and he says, but each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, after those that are Christ at his coming. So in other words, one human being has already been raised from the dead and has a glorified body, and that is Jesus Christ. We all follow suit. We will also be resurrected. He's the first fruit. Coming from the Old Testament concept that when you made harvest, you took the first truckload, you took the first bushel, you took the first fruit, and you gave it to the Lord at the temple, <clears throat> signifying that you're going to go back and do the rest of the harvest. So Jesus is that first fruit of humanity. He's the first resurrected one, and we will follow that order. So in each in his order, and in verse 23, then comes the end. He hands over the kingdom to God and the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is physical death. For he has put all things in his subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son of himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That's the Father. He's the supreme one in the roles of the Trinity. In Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you received everything you need from that moment to eternity. In seed form, in some cases. Everything you needed is in your account and will carry you all the way through the rest of eternity. You don't need to add anything. It just needs to be multiplied and developed as we go through time. Paul identifies God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Exodus chapter 3, we read, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Interesting, isn't it? How casual we talk about God. Oh, my God. We bring him up in, in, in very casual ways. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray? How did he start it? Our Father what? In heaven? What's the next line? Hallowed. Sacred is your name. It's not in, your, not in the notes here, but if you turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 20, let's just remind ourselves what he says here. Exodus chapter 20. When he made the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is very, uh, needs to be reminded, we all need to be reminded of this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, second book of the Bible. 
page, what is it? I don't even have a page number here. Too bad. Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall, all, you shall have no other God before me. Uh, a little book was written and uh, the name of the book was The Idols of the Heart. How many idols, how many little things come before uh, God in our lives? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You can't make an idol of God. There's no, nothing that represents God. No human being represents God. No image represents God. He is a spirit. And he that worships him must worship him in spirit and truth. You can't make an image of him. You shall not, verse 5, you shall not worship them, serve them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Strong language. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. His name is sacred. We sang that in a song just before the message. It's a holy name. His name embodies everything he is. And for people to take his name in vain is a very serious thing. And I've heard Christians, and when we've lost our tempers, and when we lost control of ourselves, it's interesting what words come out of our mouth. And I've heard people say to me, excuse me, but I'm mad. And so that gives them a right to say some pretty foolish, dumb things about God using his name in vain. Calling upon God to damn whatever they don't like. And not believing in him at all. His name is sacred. It is holy. Furthermore, we read in this section that he says he identifies himself as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how he identified himself in the Old Testament? He said in Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he linked himself to the patriots of Israel. How does he link himself to us? I'm the father of your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know exactly who he is. Sometimes when I hear people pray before a special event like a basketball game, football game, gives the invocation. They say, and I pray to you, God, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you look like, whatever's going on, you'd wonder who in the world are they praying to? But when they pray to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I know exactly which God and who they're praying to, to which you're praying. 
The next uh, phrase we have is the Lord. And we read about the Lord in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and saying to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now what does that mean? He is in charge of everything in heaven and on earth. He is Lord. He's over all. The Greek word is kyrios. Speaks of power and authority. Look at Acts chapter 32. And through verse 36. Turn with me to Acts 32. When Peter was speaking. <clears throat> when he was speaking to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. He makes this statement. Acts 32. Two, and I'm going to begin at 33 actually. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that's Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, he poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was, was it not David who ascended into heaven, but David, he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh to Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made both the Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. He's the Lord and Christ. All authority has been given to him. Which means he's the head of the church. He's the head of our lives as believers or should be recognized as such. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3 it says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord unless except by the Holy Spirit. If you have a hard time saying Jesus is Lord and Lord of my life, you're in serious trouble. You're in very serious trouble. So to deny Jesus as Lord is a serious thing. It's not just a matter of semantics. It's a serious thing. So Jesus is Lord of all. Somebody said he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And we have to constantly, I believe, in our Christian life, constantly remind ourselves, don't we, that he's in charge and he is Lord. He's also Jesus, which is his personal name. That Joseph and Mary uh, called him and were told by the angel Gabriel to make his name Jesus. Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus, speaking to Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. In Luke 131, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. The word Jesus is the Joshua of the Old Testament. 
If you were in the Old Testament, his name is Joshua. Jehovah saves. It's interesting in Numbers 13, 16, there are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hoshea, Hoshea the son of Nun, Joshua. God, Moses changed his name to Joshua. Jehovah saves. The Lord of all, Jesus, personal name, saves, and he is the Christ. This is his official title. He is the Christ. The Old Testament prophecies concerning the kingdom have in view the, the Christ's kingly office. Christ will rule in the future, occupy David's throne here on earth. He is the Christ. Matthew 2, verse 2, we read where the angel told Joseph, oh, I should say ra rather, the, the uh, wise men said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He's called the king of the Jews. He's the anointed one. So our Savior and Lord will rule and reign, and you and I in this particular era between Pentecost and the coming kingdom, we are married, will be married to Jesus Christ and be his wife. Through all the ages, we have a personal relationship to him. You understand how close marriage is. Marriage, when two people are married, they're one. And we're one with Christ. No arguments in this case. No disagreements. We are one with intimate love between each other. Christ. He is our king. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to him, Who do you say I am? And they gave a list of several people they People said he am, but then he puts a question to it, and he says to the disciples, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. The anointed one, Christ, is the translation of Messiah of the Old Testament. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. When you go down to Psalm 89, 20, and 29, and you read that psalm, you come to these verses in 27. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. He's the king, and we're engaged to him in our terminology. We're espoused to him. The marriage feast of the Lamb will take place when we all in this age get to heaven. Now, what does Paul say? Okay, he greets them in the name of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. What a prayer life, Paul gives this example to us. You can ask yourself the question, are you satisfied with your prayer life? 
probably most of us who were honest would say no. We need to pray more. But Paul prayed. He was giving thanks always. And he prayed for them. It's a temporal clause with a, uh, it's not a verb, it's really a participle, which means that it's temporal. And it's a temporal clause which began when they heard how Epaphras was praying for the church at Colossae. And they gave thanks in their prayers. So every time they gave thanks, they prayed for the Colossians. They weren't always in a state of prayer. But when they prayed, they always gave thanks to uh, the Lord for the church at Colossae. It does not mean they were always in a state of prayer, just as we carry out our business, but there should be times of prayer. Think of Daniel, three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And when he was, they, they signed a thing with Darius, they said, look, if he's praying to another God, he needs to be arrested. So Daniel went in his closet and hid. No, he opened the windows and faced Jerusalem and prayed. Pray always, it says, Paul says in First Thessalonians 5. In everything give thanks. Pray, pray unceasingly. You know, you don't always have to be on your knees and facing Jerusalem to pray. You can pray in your car, you can pray anywhere. I mean, I find myself sometimes listening to people's problems and I think to myself, buddy, I don't have a clue. How to, what's the answer to this thing, Lord? I need some answers and I need some wisdom and I need it now. I'm not praying, I don't say that to them. I say it in my mind. Or pray for wisdom. How to face the situation. Faced with a, some kind of a problem, faced with a decision you have to make, pray to God. Feel free to let it go. Pray and say, Lord, I need help here. We pray for our grandchildren. When we pray for our grandchildren, we pray that they may grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and be used of God. And we also pray that you will bring to them their mate. That you will bring to them their husband or their wife. A godly person. Is this worth praying for? Aren't you concerned about that? I, I am and was. Praying that God will bring them to the right person. And make the right choice. Praying always for you. So prayer is a very important part of our Christian life. Now the purpose or the two virtues for which he thanks God are seen in verse 4. I thank God when we heard of your faith in Christ and your love which you have for all the saints. Paul and Timothy initially heard about their faith and love from Epaphras who, who founded the church who was telling them about their faith. This was a genuine born again church who placed who repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. It's not only their initial faith, but their continued faith in 
the Lord in the operation of their life individually and corporately. Their faith in was not some intellectual assent to a creed, but faith is a persuasion that is something that is true and can be trusted. It carries with it the idea of obedience. Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Romans 16, 25. But now as manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been named, made known to all nations, leading to the obedience of faith. This was the faith that was exhibited in the church at Colossae. Is it exhibited in us as a church? Do people see the collective corporate people that are attending this body of believers? And do they see a faith here? Do they see an exhibition of the faith that is here? I think they do. Um, people in Hampton know what's going on here. People who drive by see what's happening here. When I came here 12 years ago, people were saying, oh, you go to the, the, the uh, Gas and Go Church? You go to the, uh, what is it, uh, Pray and Pump? Pump and Pray? Because this is one time a restaurant, truck stop. I don't hear that anymore. Do you? The faith has changed this. The faith has changed this. When I came here, we met several times. I met several times with the men of the church. And I asked them, I said, uh, they wanted me to consider coming here. And I asked them, I said, do you really have a ministry here? Or are you just spreading the Lord's money thin? Is there a real reason why Countryside should be here? They assured me, yes, there is a reason. And uh, having been here this long, I think there is a reason. A very strong reason. And I don't think this church should just sit on its laurels. And in fact, I think we should keep looking in our vision for expecting the Lord to bless us in many ways, which is not just spiritually, but people-wise. I think if you were not just sitting here, but if you were to take time and to go to the back of the church during the Sunday school hour, and I'll tell you another good time to do it, come here during Bible school. We are crammed for space. You all know that. You go back there and we're crammed for space. And we've talked about a building program and we and the cost is, like it or not, it's close to $1.5 million. And we've talked about the fact that we're not gonna make a step much until we get 500 grand in some sort of a fund so that we can go ahead. We did that the last time we did this room 
And we, the project was what, 1.3, something like that? 1.6? Bigger than I thought. And God paid it off in five years. Now, it would be nice if God would give us the 1.5 million right off the bat. Wouldn't that be great? How much faith would that exercise? If you have a million dollars in the bank, are you concerned about the price of groceries going up? Probably not. But if you're kind of scraping along like the average person, costs bother you. But I have a promise that I have to remind myself of. My God shall supply all your needs according to what? His riches in Christ Jesus. Don't you find it interesting when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt? What was the first blockade? The Red Sea. And what did the people say? Oh, wonderful opportunity to see God work. What did they say? Moses, you brought us into the wilderness to die. Isn't that what they said? And what did Moses say? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stretched out his rod. The water parted. Dry ground in between. And they walked through it. But he didn't tell them ahead of time, I'm going to part the Red Sea for you before you get there. Don't worry about it. He brought them to the crisis. Now they've been 40 years and griping and complaining. God got rid of that generation. And everybody above 20, with the exception of Caleb and uh, Joshua, Lived. Got rid of that griping complaint. Generation. Now they come and they're going to go into the holy ground. Land of Canaan. What's the obstacle now? The Jordan River. Now the Jordan River today is about like the creek north of here, Beaver Creek. But the Jordan River then was flooding. And what did God say to Moses? The priests have to do what with the ark? Put their feet in the water. Faith is trusting God when it doesn't seem like anything works. It's faith. How do you know you're saved? Because you can feel it? Because you've seen Jesus Christ? How do you know you're saved? You're saved because you believe it from God's word. By faith alone. By his word alone. So if we're going to have a testimony here, we cannot just sit here. We continually pray that God will open the gates for us. And move ahead by faith when he gives us the opportunity to do so. So I'm not discouraged by the fact that interest is high. Er, 
I'm not discouraged by the fact that money is almost worthless. If God wants to do this, then he'll do it. And I believe he will. And I believe that in our Christian life as well. They had that kind of faith. That church grew and went ahead. Furthermore, they had love. They loved one another. You know, we exhibit love in this church. I believe we do. People are willing to help each other, love each other, care for each other. The word is agape. It is a worth, it is a higher love. It is a love that is intellectual. It is a love that is unselfish. It is a love that is free from judgment. It loves the individual because they love Christ. And it loves the world because God sent his son to die for the world. So we love. We're known for our love. The Colossian church was known for its love for one another. I told the Sunday school class this morning, we tend to be judgmental, don't we? We see somebody coming in with a bunch of tattoos and we say, oop. Well, you can have tattoos on the outside and you may have put them on the outside in a, for whatever reason. But in inside is what we're interested in is their love toward Jesus Christ and who and what they are. You know, that makes it kind of hard, doesn't it? We have all these immigrants coming across and we say, whoa, but it's a Christian. As a Christian, we send missionaries to Mexico. We send missionaries to Guatemala. We send missionaries to um, all these countries down there, Venezuela, China. They're here. They're here. What are we doing about it? Complaining? Are we praying that God would give us a vision on how to encourage people? We were at a graduation of my grandson at Southern Seminary and uh, we were talking about it at lunch before he graduated and he said where, we, we, where should we eat and he said I love Mexican food I'm from California that's Mexican food and I said you know what we got Mexican food in Aurora and York Central City and it's as good as anything in California because it's made by the Mexicans. What are we doing to reach the immigrants and the Mexicans and the black people in our own area? Seriously, what are we doing? Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, he gave his last words, go ye into all the world and what? Preach the gospel, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That was the work at the church at Ephesus, and that was the church at Colossae. 
Let us pray as our men come to prepare the table for our communion. Father, we uh, and myself, how woefully we have neglected some of the more serious things in sharing the gospel with the people around us and literally have focused on other things. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and even as we participate in this communion service, may it not be a ritual. May it not be just another communion, but may we really ask ourselves a question. Ask ourselves the question seriously. Where is Jesus Christ in my life this morning? Where has he been in my life this past week? How much time have I given to him in sharing my faith? And even with my own children, how faithful have I been? Lord, I confess my sin and I give a, a remind myself that you are the Lord. You are Jesus, and you are the Christ. And Father God is your Father. Thank you for letting me be a part of this fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.